Um, so as I said, raise your hand, someone will bring you a Bible. And if you actually don't have a Bible, this is not a possession that you own, you can actually take one of these home, and uh, may it be our gift to you. One of the greatest gifts you can give somebody is a copy of God's Word in print. Well, hey, um, let's go to Psalm 3. Wasn't expecting to do the scripture reading this morning, but happy to do it. Always a good thing to be able to read God's word. So Psalm 3. Go with me there. If you're confused about where Psalm 3 is, go to the center. You should find yourself in Psalms, a collection of 150 uh, chapters, prayers, and we'll be here in Psalm 3 at the very beginning. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Silah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Silah. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. God. Let's pray. Thanks, God, that we can talk to you, that you invite us to talk to you. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, the words of my mouth, that they would be simply a reflection upon the truths that you have revealed to me this week as it pertains to this passage in our lives. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would magnify them in the hearts of people here. I pray that if there's anyone here today, and there always is, who does not love you, who does not know you, who is confused about Christianity, who is here because someone invited them, and there's maybe a free lunch happening afterwards, we just pray Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in their hearts today, that they would come to know you, and that the cause of their life, Lord, would become knowing Christ and the glory of your resurrection. And all God's people said, amen. Well, uh, we are in this series on the Psalms, and I had a couple of comments last week of excitement about studying the Psalms, and one of the precursors to that, that comment was, I'm not very emotional. So I want to just like put it all out there for you to say that I grew up in a family that we didn't express a lot of emotions, at least from my father. My mother, on the other hand, well, there was emotions at every romantic comedy and uh, every sort of serious discussion that happened after 9 p.m. And so my mom actually brought in a rule a little bit into our uh, childhood that said, no serious discussions after 9 p.m. And we were all very happy to abide by that particular rule. So for you, as it relates to emotions, you maybe would be, say that you are a person that you don't, you don't have a lot of emotions. Maybe you're like, I, I, I don't 
I certainly don't express them, and you're sort of, you're straight-laced, and you don't really think too much about your emotions. Well, certainly, you are a person with emotions. Uh, certainly, maybe you internalize fear, maybe you internalize anger or resentment. Those are certainly emotions, but maybe you don't express them externally. Now, uh, the way you'd answer the question, uh, how do you deal with your emotions, as I said, might be through your family of origin. Maybe your cultural background. I was with uh, Andrea and her work for her work Christmas party last night. And we were going around at the table talking about emotions, actually, and, and how different cultures share their emotions. Uh, and the two guys I was talking to, both from an Indian background, shared that, well, you know, we, we don't actually don't say we love, we love, they don't say I love you to their fathers or to, they don't give their siblings hugs. And I'm like, come on, get over yourself. Give them a hug. Say you love them. They're like, no, that's just not what we do. And I'm like, okay. It's totally weird. That's really a shame, though. You really should say, I love you. Um, and I'm a very huggy person, if you know me well. So uh, I, that was just completely out of my paradigm. But maybe for you, uh, you would say that you're not a very emotional person. Well, welcome to the Psalms. And the Psalms uh, invite us to begin expressing and starting to certainly talk to God honestly about our emotions. And we began to see that last week. Now, the second question I want to ask uh, related to this topic as we begin today is, is how do you handle fear? Uh, how do you handle fear? And that's certainly a human emotion, right? Uh, some of us, uh, we internalize our fears. Sometimes some of us maybe externalize our fears. Um, you know, it was, some would say that the culture in which we live is, uh, is a place in which lots of fear is on display. And fear can be a very powerful motivator. And another way that we sort of answer this question of what we would do with fear might be related to uh, our particular worldview. And a couple of years ago, I was researching uh, atheist blogs, because uh, that's interesting, right? And I was researching an atheist blog where uh, a writer was writing into an atheist and said, um, what do I do about my fear of death? Now, some of us can maybe relate, uh, certainly around the fear of death. And this is how this atheist blogger responded to their question. And he writes, I think your predicament can be readily helped by working with a competent secular counselor who will neither offer you religious hocus-pocus nor other futile ways to distract yourself. A good counselor will stay by your side as you walk all the way through your valley of shadow. He or she will teach you to breathe deeply and slowly and help you to turn and face your fear. Completely experience it, realize that you have survived it, and no longer be intimidated by it. You will have seen that it is nothing but a couple of thoughts and a few bodily sensations. Meh. Literally, M-E-H, he writes. As you get older, I think that the positive differences that you make in the world by your contribution will become a much stronger compensation, comfort, and satisfaction for you. Rather than hiding from death, you will be spending your days embracing life. This was this person's perspective. If you kind of catch the drift, it's essentially sort of get over it, breathe, do good things in the world, and you'll be completely fine and you'll get over your fear of death. Uh, you could also, if you to study and be in the world of atheism, um, other ways to overcome fear or anxieties is medicate. And I'm not saying medication is a bad thing. Sometimes medication is absolutely necessary. But the, the way to solve issues in a primarily uh, atheistic worldview is we will, it's purely a physical problem. So we've got to f solve the physical problem. So we'll medicate. 
If you have maybe a new-aged worldview or an Eastern religion worldview, negative emotion is, is seen as false. So separate yourself from this negative emotion. Uh, maybe you've taken the, I would call the super-Christian worldview as it relates to your emotions, which is, well, just go and read the Bible more or just go and listen to more Hillsong worship music or just go and like focus on more hymns. That's what I would say is the super Christian way. Now, I would suggest that the Bible actually presents another way of looking at our fear. Another way of dealing with our emotions. And it's here in Psalm 3 that we're invited into a way of how do we handle and how do we verbalize and how do we communicate our fear, particularly with God. Now, Psalm 3 is the first of the lament psalms in the section of Psalms. It's the first one where David's crying out to God. It's the first psalm here in the Psalms that's attributed to David. And it's the first with this occurrence of the word Salah, as you would have heard me read. Now, Salah, there's a lot of different uh, bits of feedback on what that actually means. And one of the best pieces of feedback that I've gotten on it, and as far as commentaries that I've read, is an opportunity within a psalm to pause, focus on what's happened, and sort of prepare yourself for what is to come next. So anytime you see Silah in a psalm, do that. Stop and think, okay, what did I just read there? Begin to meditate on what, maybe what's about to come. It's an individual psalm of lament in which David expresses confidence in personal and individual deliverance from God. Now, as we looked at last week, as we looked at Psalm 40, this particular psalm is written at a very particular point in the life of David. Now, some of you are like, well, who's David? And David was a king of Israel. And you can read about David in 1 and 2 Samuel. And what's going on at this point in David's life is it's an extremely low point. Now, some of us know the story of David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, if you want a little bit of a quick version, what David did was he saw a very attractive woman. He he invited her to come to his kingly courts and they just so happen to sleep together and she happens to get pregnant. He wants to try to cover it all up. So he invites her husband to come back from the military to hopefully sleep with his wife. He refuses because he's committed to the military escapade and to his country. And so David ends up deciding, well, if he's not going to go home and sleep with his wife, I don't want to get caught. So let's just have the man killed. So he has the man killed. And then he invites Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, you would think, oh, well, he's, you know, he's kind of covered it all up. But Nathan, a prophet, comes and says, God knows what you've done, David. Now, I don't know about you, but David, it says in the scriptures, is a man after God's own heart. I don't have a friend that has done this sort of thing before. Right? Do you? Sleeps with a woman and then kills her husband? Like, I don't know anyone like that. That's the Bible. It's crazy. And the, the, the consequence of what David has done with Bathsheba is we read in, in 2 Samuel 12, verses 11 to 12, that his kingdom and his life is going to be torn apart by family troubles. We read this, thus says the Lord, uh, 2 Samuel 12, verses 11 to 12, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. We then find out that the kingdom, his kingdom, has been wrenched from his grasp by Absalom's rebellion. And Absalom is his son. So 
Think about this. This is, this is like, honestly, this is crazy, okay? Here we have this king who's the king of the kingdom. He does this terrible thing with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband Uriah. He then finds out that the future of his kingdom is going to be divided from within. It then happens to be his son Absalom who is taking his kingdom away from him. And now what David has to do is he's fearing for his life. And so he actually needs to leave Jerusalem where his house is to leave Jerusalem because now his son is there and he's gone across the Jordan River and is now waiting on the other side, fearful for his life. Like he's in this situation of, am I going to lose it all from the hand of my son? His son wants to kill him. Now, uh, as you can imagine, I don't know if many of us could completely relate Right? I mean, some of us are saying, like, wow, that's intense. And, and if that's all it starts or stops at, that's good. You need to know that the situation in which David is writing here, it's intense. His very life is in balance. And as we're going to see, there's also far more imbalance here for him. And so you ask the question is, how do you deal with this level of fear? What do you do in that sort of situation? Enter Psalm 3. So let's go there. Notice how David begins. He starts with, Oh Lord. Now, um, those of us that have been around the Christian scene for quite a while are maybe like, Oh, that's just a nice way of talking to God. Oh Lord. And it is. Of course. I, know, I never knew someone who just said Lord constantly in their prayers. It maybe wasn't the nicest thing to do, but I used to just count how many times they'd say Lord <laughs> as the prayer went on. Clearly, I was not focusing on their prayer. But here, the language that David is using by O oh Lord is he's referring to God as Yahweh. Now, for those of us who are maybe like, okay, what, what does that mean? Well, this is the name that God actually describes himself to the Israelite people way back in history. This is the way that God reveals himself to his people. It's the name that he uses when he wants them to understand his forever relationship with them. In other language, a covenant. That I am your God and you are my people and I love you and I'll be there with you forever. It's also the name by which God makes his covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7 verse 10, God promises David... He says, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So put this in context. David has the promise of God, the covenant promise, that his family would be on the throne forever. That there would be an established relationship forever. Yet here he is in a situation in which that seems to be, maybe this might not be the case. So notice how he starts the psalm. O Lord, your name, who you are, your covenant, this perfect relationship, I'm turning to you. Now this is key as it relates to how we talk honestly to God. And I think the point can be is that we can talk honestly with God when we know clearly who he is and know that we have been invited into a relationship with him. Like, Many of us know this. You struggle to have an honest relationship with someone that you don't have a relationship with. Right? If you actually study the levels of community, there's this first level of community, that pseudo-community. 
It's actually what it's called. And it's, and it's when you're hanging out with a group of people for the very first time and you don't talk about anything controversial and you're kind of just like, hey, how's it going? Good. Like, what do you do for a living? Good. Oh, neat. Right, right on. And you keep yourself very, like, quiet. You, you probably aren't going to walk into that meeting for the first time and be like, man, you talk a lot. You should really be quiet. Like, as your relationship builds, right, you're going to speak honestly with someone. Like, I've been watching your life for a while, and you talk a lot. You need to listen more. Like, you don't say that upon your first hangout with somebody. But you can speak honestly when you know that you have a relationship with somebody. Do you know, or do you have the confidence, as we're going to describe a little bit later on here, do you have the confidence in your relationship with God to the point that you can actually be honest with him? Because if you know that you're in a relationship with a perfect and holy God and that there's no barriers between that relationship, you should be able to talk honestly with him. The way that you talk honestly with someone else in your life that you're close with. Right? So David addresses this relational God. Yahweh, he starts with. So important. He then writes, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This right here, if we didn't know the historical context, helps us understand the very object of his fear. He is fearful of the people, the enemies, that are wanting him dead. Rightly so. Now, who are these enemies? And this is really key. These enemies are people of Israel. These enemies are people that should be respecting him, bowing before him, being in his kingdom. But now these enemies and these people are wanting him dead. Now, let me apply this. It's one thing for somebody outside of your life to make a comment about you. It's another thing for somebody inside your relational circle to make a comment about you or to doubt you, right? It would be one thing for the Philistines or another nation at the time of David to be making comments about David. It's a completely other thing when the Israelites, his people, are making comments about him and disbelieving in the relationship and the covenant that God made with him, right? Like this is what they say there about him. There is no salvation for him and God. They're doubting his very status, and his very relationship with God. Now, what's really interesting about what's going on here is that there's actually an opportunity that's provided when you can identify what it is that you're afraid about or what you're afraid of. And the opportunity is that who or what we fear reveals who or what we worship. Let me explain. Who or what we fear reveals who, who or what we worship. Maybe the word worship is throwing you off. Simply mean what takes the center place in your life? What is the thing that you care about the very most and therefore it influences and affects everything else, like, like ripples? You see, David is at a crossroads here of am I going to fear people and what they say about me or am I going to fear God and what he has said about me? And wherever he places the greatest level of fear, if we're to use that language, it will affect how he then relates to his circumstance, relates to his situation, and where he'll ultimately place his confidence. Some of us 
can identify in our own lives that when we don't rightly fear God, it's because we're rightly fearing something else. If I fear what you think of me more than what God thinks of me, it's going to affect the way that I pastor you. It's going to affect the way that I speak to you here, right? Because I'm going to want to appease you. I'm going to want to pat you on the back. And sometimes we need to be patted on the back, and that's a good thing. But what about times when we as a church community need to be challenged? And if I'm just like, oh, I don't want to like ruffle any feathers. It shows that I'm fearing you more than I'm actually fearing God. So ask yourself the question about maybe our particular fear that you're identifying in your life right now. Do you have that fear because you don't rightly fear who you should be fearing, which is God? Now, that's not like an always a tremble fear, but when you think about who God is, maybe we should tremble. Right? All-powerful, everywhere at once. Maybe we should rightly fear him. And therefore, he needs to be the focus of our lives. Let's jump to verse 3 and 4. David is at this crossroads. What's he going to do? Will he fear people and his enemies? Or will he fear God? He writes, But you, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. For David, God is so different than those who oppose him. And he is in this moment at the crossroads saying, I'm convinced of God and his covenant with me. I'm not going to fear my enemies, even though they're insiders. I'm going to rightly relate to God. And he uses three descriptions. He uses the language of a shield. David is placing himself under the protection of a great king. He then uses the language of my glory. This is the power of the great king of his kingdom, God's glory being greater than any human power or glory. He says that God is the lifter of his head. For David, he makes his choice. His confidence is in Yahweh who established his kingship. We then see in verse 4a, I cried to the Lord with my voice. Now, as I said earlier, you only cry out to somebody that you believe you have a relationship with. Do you feel that you can cry out to the Lord? Because one of the ways, and I'm convinced of this, that you can test on how much you're actually relying on God or how much you're willing to talk to him and believe that he's in control is to examine your prayer life. Now, for those of us who are believers, think about your prayer life right now. How much do you pray? Uh, like uh, before dinner. Okay, so you're thankful for your dinner. What about everything else? Because here's, here's my problem, okay? And this is where I struggle to believe. I struggle to believe that prayer does something because I think that I could be quicker to do it myself. So why would I pray? Because I can just go handle the situation. Right? But what that shows me is that I don't have confidence in the one that I pray to. I have more confidence myself. I fear myself more than I fear God. But David says, I cried to the Lord with my voice. 
Some of us have been in that situation before. We can identify with David. I cry to the Lord. Why, God? Why now? What's going to happen? What's this going to look like? Tell me. Do something. For David, I don't want my kingdom to be gone. This is my son. My kid. My own kin. He wants me dead. Are you going to be faithful or is he going to kill me? Is my own son going to kill me? Verse 4b. And he heard me from his holy hill. And he heard me. He heard me. I cried to the Lord. He heard me. Woo! He heard me from his holy hill. What happens next? I laid down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle sleeping when I'm freaking out. Right? I'm a worrier. I struggle with insomnia where, like, Andrea, like, in the morning, she'll be like, oh, like, what a great night. I'll be like, yeah, I didn't fall asleep till, like, two. She'll be like, what? What were you thinking about? Well, where do you want me to start? I'll tell you where I was. Some of you are like the kind where it's like, it takes five seconds, you hit your pillow, you're gone. doesn't matter what's going on. Those of us that can relate are like, preach it, man. You're lying there. Like, I don't know. If I was David, I'd probably be like mustering my men. <laughs> like, guys, let's get ready. No sleeping. And what if somebody comes and gets me when I'm sleeping? For David, I laid down and slept. I awoke. For who sustained him? The Lord. David is able to sleep because his confidence is in his father. He has learned to console himself in God. God sustains. Sustenance comes from him, which leads to him saying, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. So I ask the question, do you live with the same confidence amidst your fears, and have you surrendered them to him? David then transitions. you think it would be enough to just stop there. But David's still working through this emotion, right? And sometimes that's what it means for us. So he prays for deliverance in verse 7. Arise, O Lord! Save me, O my God! So his emotional state seems to be leveling out, but he's still like, there's still an enemy coming! So save me! Do something, God! For you struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Now this sounds like, whoa, David. But this is an expression of humiliation. It sounds harsh, but it is an expression of confidence in God who is on the throne and who is just. Now, I heard someone use this illustration. We don't like to talk about wrath or just, true justice here in North America because many of us enjoy sipping lattes and Christmas drinks at Starbucks. But if you're in a situation on the other side of the world where your enemy is at the place of he's about to kill you or he will pillage and take your wife to be his own wife, you want justice. Right? We all like the idea of a a God who is super loving and would just forgive everybody 
But that's a very Western thing. Because how do you tell someone on the other side of the world who's fighting someone who has a completely different ideology than them that there's no justice against that person for what they've done to you? And here David is saying, there needs to be justice. But notice what he's not doing. He's not saying, I'm going to go get it. He says, God, you need to be the just one. Vengeance is yours. It's not mine. That's an example worth following. And then he finishes after saying, God, do something with salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. So the blessing of God is a result of his gracious deliverance. And David is now concerned with his kingdom and the people. And he believes that through God's victory, his covenant, the relationship that he has with God, will be established to himself and his people. So God, as you save me, you'll save your people, and you'll continue to establish this relationship. So how does David handle his emotion of fear? He speaks in brutal honesty to a God that has invited and made a covenant with him. He speaks in brutal honesty to a God that he knows he has a relationship with. Now I'd ask us, as I already have, can you do the same thing? Do you think that you can be this honest with God? about your fears? Or how about, do you believe that you can be honest with him about your fears and then leave it in his lap rather than trying to take it on in your own? It's sort of like giving somebody a check and then taking it back right away. Like, nope, I want to keep it. But actually surrendering. Now you might say, well, yeah, I have that confidence. I'd say, good. But then I'd ask you, what is your motivation for that confidence? For some of us, we lean more to a legalist perspective. Do you feel you have earned yourself favor with God so he ought or owes listening to you? Because some of us do this. I have confidence talking to God. Well, he owes listening to me because I've been really obedient last week. But notice the, the relationship that David has with God. He just killed a man. So he's got nothing as he approaches God, yet he still approaches God. Or maybe you lean on the other side where it's like, well, you know, God just, he's super loving, which he is, but like God's super loving and he, he'll totally like overlook my sin and like, so he has to listen to me. David's not doing that either, right? He's sitting in the reality of what he's done. His son is coming across. He's like, am I going to live? Am I going to serve? Am I going to be here a month from now? Or maybe you, you rightly have confidence speaking to God because of the good news of Jesus, of the gospel. Because you know that in, if God was truly being just with you, you wouldn't be able to talk to him. But because he sent his son to die for you, to give you new life, to save you, to give you a hope and a future, you know that you can approach him honestly because he loves you, knows all your stuff, and loves you. So it doesn't come from, well, you owe me, God, because I've been super obedient. It comes from, 
man, what an opportunity that I have to speak to you, God. This is amazing. Hebrews 14, verses 14 to 16, writes this. Since then, we have a great high priest, this is speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, or what we believe. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It says, let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Notice what he writes. Let us then with what? Confidence. Why? Because of God's grace. So it's, The reality is that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ have confidence that God hears their cries and meets them in their fears. Is this where you place your hope and faith? I love what this commentator, William Van Gemmerman, writes. The God who gave victory to David and the blessing to his people has confirmed his love in Jesus, who identified himself with David's sufferings and emerged victorious. Through Jesus, God extends deliverance, victory, and blessing to all who believe in his name. Now, I was asked the question earlier, do you feel like you can approach God in brutal honesty? And maybe you're saying, no, I don't even know who God is. Okay, that's, that's good. I, identify that. Where do you go when you're fearful? And maybe you turn to yourself and what you can do for you. Maybe you turn to other people. Maybe you turn to social media. Maybe you turn to systems. Corporations, government, your job. I would ask that you'd simply hear the good news is that there is an all-powerful God who sees you, who knows you better than you know yourself, who knows your fears, who sympathizes with your fears, who sent his son to embody our fear on the cross, to take those things from us, So that you and I could boldly come to him understanding that we have been forgiven for everything that we've ever done. And also given hope. You know, as as we look back on on history, uh, a huge place I think that we can look back and be encouraged by witness is when the slave trade was going on in the United States. And our colored brothers and sisters were being tortured and murdered and treated like animals. And for many of them, you would ask, how, how do you live with the fear of that happening every day? And for many of them, it was their hope that one day they would spend eternity with Jesus Christ And that hope for eternity also gave them hope in the present 
to help them overcome their current fears of what life would look like because of what it would mean one day. Of the promise that they had. And so they trust in God. I'll finish with this quote from Jonathan Edwards. He writes, Trust in God and you need not fear. Trust in God and you need not fear. I think what we could probably say of this statement is trust in yourself and you most certainly will fear. Trust in other people around you and you certainly will fear. Trust systems and you certainly will fear. Trust programs, you certainly, trust politics. Good luck, you still need to fear. Like, what does Edwards write? Based on his experience and from reading the scriptures, trust in God and you need not fear. And you can boldly approach God who is on the throne because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. It's as simple as that. But so hard to apply. Right? We read that. Some of you are reading that like, sounds lovely on a screen. Then what I would invite you to do today is to come forward for prayer. And say, I want to trust that. I want to trust God. So come forward and let us pray for you. As we did last week, you can come to the front in physical submission and just kneel here at the front and say, God, I want to trust you. And I don't want to fear things, people. I want to rightly fear you. And when I rightly fear you, knowing who you are and how powerful you are, that you see it all, and yet you love me, I don't need to fear. And so, like David, though you're wrestling with your emotions, you can simply leave it to him to solve. Let's pray. I'll invite the band. And while they're playing, as I said, I invite you to come forward for prayer. Come forward to kneel. Let's give our time to God and his spirit to do a work in our hearts and lives right now. So, holy God, I thank you that you love us, that you made a way for us to approach you. And I pray that we would take some time right now that as we respond to the message, Lord, that as your Holy Spirit is applying it to our lives, I pray that we would trust you, that we would identify, maybe do the hard work of saying, what do I fear and then why do I fear that thing? So thank you for the business that you want to do in our lives. I pray that we, as I've shared, would be open to it today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.